welcome to another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens. You can find my movie reviews and interviews 24-7 in print and online in the U.S. and abroad. But every Monday, you'll find me right here on Adrenaline Radio, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time. Bringing you, going behind the lens and below the line on film, TV, and even on occasion, music and books. This week, very excited about our guest this week. We've had the best lineup of of guests recently. I mean, uh, absolutely incredible filmmakers. And of course, legends like Ray Parker Jr. and Dick Cavett. Today, we've got... Director, a co-director with Alex Gibney, an executive producer of Rolling Stone Stories from the Edge, Blair Foster, the Emmy Award winner herself, um, talking about the legendary Rolling Stone and 50 years um, of, of legacy. It's a six-episode series. It is currently available on iTunes in the U.S. and the United Kingdom. Uh, March 27th, it goes global on a multitude of other platforms. This series is amazing. I watched the first six episodes. Uh, you really, it ta- you get very nostalgic. It takes you down memory lane. There's archival footage that most of us have never seen before. Um, narrated by Jeff Daniels, of course. Sections on Hunter S. Thompson are, of course, narrated by Johnny Depp. Um, but we're going to get into detail with Blair about Rolling Stone stories from the edge. Uh, I can't recommend it highly enough. You know, rush to iTunes. Don't, you know, rush today, tonight. It is an incredible series. And at the midpoint of the show, we have somebody who's no stranger to Behind the Lens, somebody who's no stranger to a lot of you out there listening today, my dear friend, former colleague, and yeah, I got to be his boss as a producer on some of his films. Ned Airbar is joining us live to talk about his first feature film, which is done on the festival circuit, The California No. It is, I, I can't wait to talk to Ned. Cannot wait to talk to him about this film, especially since I haven't seen him since he just up and left and went to New York and is now doing television stuff uh, with MTV. So this is going to be fun having Ned uh, in addition to, to Blair. I mean, I'm so looking forward to today's show. But before we get to our, our guest today, got to talk about a very special movie that came out this weekend. Actually, we had a few movies come out this weekend. One of the best indie movie weekends that we've seen in a while. First of all, I got to talk about Flower, directed by Max Winkler, starring Zoe Deutsch. Showing on three screens in the country, right, this weekend. The highest per screen average, unheard of, $19,284. This coming weekend, the film will be expanding into 60 screens in 20 cities, followed by a national rollout. Flower, it's, it's fun, it's fresh. It, and it's the sweetest smelling indie that we're gonna that we've seen in a long time, so put that on your radar, people. Watch out for Flower. Love Simon, open based on the young adult novel Simon versus the Homo Sapiens Agenda. 
another one. See it. It's the whole family can see it. It's fabulous. And of course, then something that comes as no surprise, I can only imagine. I'm sure most of you are familiar, have heard somewhere along the way, the Mercy Me blockbuster hit, I Can Only Imagine, um, written by Mercy Me frontman Bart Millard. The song, it's the biggest selling Christian single of all time, but what makes it so is it crossed over into mainstream. It crossed over everywhere. Uh, the song is is fabulous. The story behind Bart Millard's writing of it, even more so. I can only imagine is the film version of that story. And starring in the film as Bart's father, Arthur, is none other than Dennis Quaid. Um, Arthur was anything but a kind man. Uh, he was violent. He was psychologically abusive. And we see this unfold in the film. Uh, but we also see redemption and we see this incredible arc and this journey that Dennis goes on as he portrays Arthur. Because this film is as much about Arthur's story as it is about Bart's journey to writing the song, I Can Only Imagine. So I got to sit down with Dennis Quaid last week and talk to him about I Can Only Imagine. Take a listen. Well, something I'm glad you said yes to was this film. Yeah, me too. Oh, my God. Dennis, your arc, the arc of Arthur. To see you with such a redemptive character and to see you play it, it's beautiful to see on the screen. Well, it was, yeah, it was, that's what happened to this person, this real person, too. Uh, You know, incredible. It was yeah, the story of uh, how the impossible made possible. You know, that's that arc of yeah. something uh, of uh, of change in one's life, real change. Yeah, that's, that's the way it works for me, at least. You know, I'm curious. You played so many real life characters, men that are, and people that are very much alive. Jimmy Morris, for mm-hmm. one, still one of my favorite performances. Mm-hmm. Oh, thanks. As Jimmy Morris, I just saw him last year. He's a great guy. Oh my god. But, you know, you tackle these, and there aren't too many actors who are brave enough to tackle the real human beings. Oh, I don't, I don't know about that. I think they all want <laughs> They want a job for sure. But go ahead. What are your But you know, you have a great ability to tap into the humanity and the actual heart of each of these real men that you play. Yeah, that's fa- that's what fascinates me about acting that's uh, really why I got why I wanted to become an actor because I'm fascinated by uh, what makes people tick why they are the way they are when they say the things that they do you know, uh, how they're what what they do has an impact on who they are what you know, kind of childhood they had how, why do they walk that way why you know why did they mm-hmm. the, the, what makes them think that way and, uh, you know, the, the combination of factors. And so when I play a real person, I try to be true to them. I try to uh, not comment on mm-hmm. it. I try to really, uh, or judge them. I just try to get inside their heads about how the way they feel about mm-hmm. themselves mm-hmm. inside. Now, did you get a chance to speak with Bart about <clears throat> His father? I sat him down, and you know, after <clears throat> when we first got to the 
shooting. Uh, of course, I read the script, and the script was, I, I couldn't believe the story. I mean, uh, you didn't know the story going on. I didn't know the song. I didn't know the story. I didn't know. Any, any you anymore. a musician, and you didn't know the no, song? No, I, wow. I didn't know. And, and uh, I can only imagine what he wrote about his father after he died, yeah. you know, and it became the biggest faith-based song ever. And uh, it's picked up, and, and people, uh, when they hear it, and the reason it's so big is because everybody relates to it mm-hmm. personally in their own lives. That's what hits, you know. And uh, uh, but I didn't know anything. I didn't. I, so I, I was sent the CD and the script. So I put the CD aside. And I, you know, it's going to be the script. That's what I'm doing. So, and uh, it hit me in such a profound way. What uh, Bart had been through mm-hmm. in his childhood and well into his teens as a young man, and uh, how his father could do this to his son, mm-hmm. even if he was an abused child himself, and, you know, or you know, he was a bitter man about his own dreams that weren't fulfilled. There's no excuse for abuse, but he made Bart feel bad about himself every day. Uh, you know his self-esteem about, and um, his father got cancer. Bart was well into his teens. He had left home, left home early, right? You know, mm-hmm. called run away or just get out or whatever. You know, out of fear. Uh, and uh, it was his relationship with his father was dead. You know, mm-hmm. and there was something about Bart that was dead inside too mm-hmm. but his father got cancer and it was that death sentence type of a cancer and he didn't tell anybody about it he was you know too tough mm-hmm. for all that stuff but it uh, it started something in him he had to face himself he was facing death so you know when you go to sleep at night when you wake up you know you, you you're facing it mm-hmm. and uh, he had a spiritual awakening through that you can call it a death row conversion <laughs> I like that you can call it but whatever however it happened it was real and he wanted to um, he wanted to have uh, some, he started to see himself of, of who he was mm-hmm. and had been and he was as Bart described him a monster I mean a real true monster mm-hmm. Uh, physical, emotional, physical, emotional, and uh, verbal ab- abuse, and uh, but uh, through his spiritual awakening and, th- and through prayer, and uh, you know he, his path, he found Jesus, and uh, just you know prayer makes us really see the truth in ourselves because mm-hmm. you know, it. Uh, it and uh, he had to face that, and Bart was long gone. He didn't. Bart did not even know he had cancer because right. he didn't tell anybody, and uh, it wasn't going to happen. And uh, uh, his father persisted and uh, really uh, seeking forgiveness, real forgiveness. Mm-hmm. She never asked anything from anybody, and uh, slowly it, it came about. And Arthur also had to forgive himself too, you know. And uh, and uh, 
it, it, they, wound, they wound up increments at a time getting closer and closer mm-hmm. and by the time that Arthur died they had the most loving close relationship uh, father and son which is a fantastic gift they could give Bart because no Bart did not have to carry that feeling about himself and about his father around for the rest of his life and you know it would have been the rest of his life yeah. and uh, and when he died um, Arthur died he wrote I can only imagine the song which became the biggest selling faith based song and it crossed ever. over into everything yes right. I heard it on pop stations right that. Yeah, well, it was, and you know why? Because you know he wrote it about his father, and it's picked up, you know, in faith-based community that it's about Jesus, you know, mm-hmm. and which it, which it is, and it's done. But but it's it could it could be it relates to everybody because of every it's personal to everyone. Everyone mm-hmm. makes it personal unto themselves. Everyone has something in their lives that hold mm-hmm. this, that that. That you get filled, and it's a song of hope and redemption, and it's a mm-hmm. song of joy, and uh, it's beautiful. It is. How did the song in- help influence you listening to this it? song? It, it's a song that it actually kind of worked on me slowly, to tell you the truth. Mm-hmm. And last night, in fact, last night I was in Dallas. I was on stage with Bart, and. Uh, uh, at the end scene of the movie where we're you know he's out in the audience mm-hmm. it's like it's like that I, I you know to come over there and I do a song with him he does that and things. It, was, it was like the end of the movie again you know, look at him and uh, it really it really uh, it's a beautiful song mm-hmm. and uh, I, I think he'll be singing it God can make God will make a way for you if you ask, but you have to do you have to walk that way. <laughs> you have to do the things that you do along the road, you know, to do that. And um, it's uh, it's hard. You know, it's it's you know, forgiveness is not easy, especially forgiving yourself. And there's a big thing that uh, that uh, kind of grew inside me. And that was Dennis Quaid talking about I Can Only Imagine. In theaters now, J. Michael Finley stars as Bart Millard, Madeline Carroll, Trace Adkins. Can't recommend it highly enough. See it. And right now, welcome to Blair Foster. Welcome, Blair. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I am thrilled to have you. 
This series is phenomenal. I watched all six episodes, <laughs> blew my mind, took me back over the over the past 50 years myself. Rolling Stone was actually the very first magazine I ever subscribed to. And that was back in the 60s when you could subscribe and send the money, like cash check or credit card. And I would take babysitting <laughs> money and mail it in an envelope to, to for my subscriptions. So... I'm, that makes me so happy to hear. <laughs> <laughs> so to see what you and Alex and the team have done is absolutely amazing. What, what started, what got the ball rolling um, to put well, the stock together? It won't surprise you to hear that Jan Winter got the ball rolling. It figures. <laughs> um, you know, he knew the 50th anniversary was coming up. And he wanted to do something, you know, to, to celebrate that. And he went to HBO, and they in turn turned to, to Alex Gibney, the, my co-director. And right from the start, we knew we, we didn't want to do something that was so much a history of the magazine, but a history of the last 50 years through the eyes of the magazine and really celebrate not only the music and the musicians, but the journalism and the great writing and the great photography of mm-hmm. the magazine. So um, that's what we set out to do. Well, and you definitely succeeded. You know, I'm curious, though, how did you go about narrowing down the topics, the photos? I mean, every photo Annie Leibovitz has ever taken, you could, you could, there's a whole story with every <laughs> one that you could pick. But, you know, I know you went through some 1,300 issues um, and then sat down, rounded up former writers, editors, and then you have all of this incredible archival video of old interviews, of old concert performances, of uh, political rallies and speeches over the decades. What was this process like to, you know, honing in on, on this? <laughs> it, it was daunting. Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to lie. Um, but, you know, to get paid to read Rolling Stone magazine, is I, that's a dream job. So I, I, it, it was a challenge, but it was a, it was a joyous one. And I, I, there was a great team, and we, we set out to try and read as much as we could and try to pick stories that we felt were stories that you wouldn't have read anywhere else but Rolling Stone. Really, the stories that were going to capture the flavor of the magazine and one of the things I was really surprised about when I went back and started to read the magazine is is how many stories there were about politics and popular culture outside of music. Mm-hmm. The, the the writing about music is, of course, uh, so well-known and well-celebrated, but it's also the, you know, the birthplace of Hunter Thompson and um, other great political writing, Matt Taibbi, to, um uh, in the present day. And so we were trying to capture kind of the real variety. Um, and only Rolling Stone magazine would have sent Hunter Thompson to the 1972, uh, you know, presidential <laughs> campaign and told him to cover it. So we focused on things that we felt were just truly unique to the magazine. Uh, and we had a blast. Uh, I'll be honest. It was really fun. We spent 18 months um, and tried to, we reached out to a lot of the great writers, and fortunately, people like Ben Fontoris, Kurt Loder, they kept the cassette tapes of their interviews. Wow. And 
very generously shared them with us. So we could do a story about uh, Ben Fong Torres writing about Ike and Tina Turner and mm-hmm. hear, actually hear audio from his original interview with her from mm-hmm. 1971. Mm-hmm. Um, and Jan Winter gave us full access to his archive. And fortunately for us, he is a pack rat. <laughs> so it, it was, we had a lot of tough decisions to make, but they're the kind of decisions you want to make uh, because there was just so much great stuff. But this has also been a two-step process because you did this originally as a two-part movie, but now you've recut added material to create this six-episode series. And you could have made a 60-episode series as far as I'm concerned. We could have as far as we're concerned, too. If somebody wanted to give us the money, I think we'd keep going. Um no, we were lucky. We were able to add a great story um, about David Bowie mm-hmm. in this six-part episode. Um, Cameron Crowe talks about interviewing David Bowie and, um, you know, to have something, you know, to hear Cameron Crowe talking about David Bowie, it doesn't get better than that. Um, there's a great story about uh, the Eagles playing a Rolling Stone staff in baseball and softball. That, that's uh, hilarious. Seventies. Uh, it's such a great story, and we had actually touched upon it in another doc we did called "History of the Eagles." So now we've got we've told both sides of that story. Now, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> yeah, it's like how did you? Because you know, you and Alex work so well together. Um, your body of work speaks for itself. How did the two of you go about? collaborating on this did you divvy up assignments was there okay you were more interested say in in interviews or alex was more interested in music how was that collaboration it's it's pretty we've worked together for a long time and i think what would happen there would be some stories he would take a lead on and some stories i would take a lead on and then we would kind of swap um so we could both kind of have our because there was, we were really interesting, interested in everything. But, for example, Alex had, has done a documentary about Hunter Thompson, and mm-hmm. he is very passionate about Hunter. And so I knew, you know, he's going to Hunter Thompson um, story in this, you know, that he's going to take the lead on that. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually pushed for a story about Britney Spears. I, I, I'll admit I'm not. I wouldn't say I'm a huge Britney Spears pop music fan, but it was clear to me being immersed in the magazine that there was a period of time when Britney Spears and NSYNC and all of these bands were dominating the cover. Mm-hmm. And I thought we needed to acknowledge that. And Alex was at first a little like Britney Spears, really? And I said, just trust me on this. And and at the end of the day, he came around. He said, I get it. I, I see why you want to do this. <laughs> Well, it's something that you can... It's a very kind of back-and-forth collaboration. Yeah, something that really impressed me with what you have done is you also didn't shy away from from the faux pas, such as the fraudulent (laughs) University of Virginia gang rape story in 2014. Um, I really commend you for that because you're showing, you know, you're showing the black marks as well as, as the good ones. Was that a difficult decision to include that kind of material? Honestly, it wasn't. We were clear with Jan Winter from the start that we were going to include it um, because we felt felt 
um, it was important to the integrity of, of the film to be honest. And, and we were celebrating so many great journalistic milestones, but there are, um, there, there were mistakes made. I think any organization that's around for 50 years is going to make some mistakes. Mm-hmm. And to act otherwise is, is to be naive. And so we felt it was important to include it. So right from the start, we knew that it would be in there. And, and Jan agreed, obviously, and, and he understood. Mm-hmm. Well, one arc that you have that carries through several episodes is that of John Lennon. Um, and I know mm-hmm. that John Lennon and Rolling Stone had an incredible relationship over over the years. And how emotional was it telling that story and especially, you know, incorporating Annie Leibovitz and the final photograph ever taken of him before he died? It was incredibly emotional. When we... We were fortunate to be able to film both Jan and Annie together. Annie was getting ready for a show of her early work, and we went to, and she was showing Jan around, you know, all of these great photos she had taken for the magazine. And when we got to that photograph, that such that you know iconic, famous photograph, they teared up. You know, you I could feel the emotion in the room, and. Um, and she had she had made a promise to John Lennon. He had wanted Yoko to be on the cover, and she, and, and Annie Leibovitz made John Lennon that promise. And she went to Jan and said, "You can't just put a photo of John on the cover. I made him this promise." And Jan said, "Okay," and he put that fo- that famous photo on the cover. And I think Annie to this day is so grateful, and it's such a a reflection of her friendship with Jan and their relationship that that Jan honored it because he could have easily just put some you know photo of just John on the cover and he didn't. Yeah, I mean that that whole the entire John Lennon arc and all of those archival interviews are so powerful and because John Lennon was such an important figure and still is in music today. And the coverage and the way you portrayed everything and carried it out, not just with Lennon's story, but with so many others, the chronology, the back and forth, your editing, your editing team is superb with this. Um, You keep everything Thank you so much. We were fortunate to work with some of the top editors. One of of the editors was an editor on the O.J. Simpson documentary that won the Academy Award last year. Uh, Another of our editors is is a... Emmy-winning uh, editor who we actually worked with on a documentary we did about James Brown. They really have, a, I think, a particular understanding of music, which really helps. And I, I love that this film really celebrates music mm-hmm. and musical performances and lets you really enjoy the music, the pure and unfiltered. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. To see some of the footages with Springsteen, in the studio in the very early days of his career. I mean, it just, it's, it's stuff we haven't seen before. That's one of the beautiful things is so much of this we haven't seen. We definitely haven't heard all of these recorded interviews. Uh, and now it's, we really get to relive the last 50 years. I mean, it's in. We, I, I had never realized that, that Bruce Springsteen's, 
producer, who, who to this day is still his manager and producer, John Landau, had been one of the first writers hired for Rolling Stone magazine and had been one of their music critics. And Bruce Springsteen had been a fan of his writing and then brings him on to produce, you know, Born to Run. I, I mean, what an incredible story. And the performance footage of him in the film, I, I tell you, the younger people on the on the team were blown away by it because, <laughs> you know, they sort of, I think, only know Bruce sort of through the lens of today. And, and seeing him through Springsteen really blew them away. I mean, I, I remember when Springsteen would play at the penalty box um, when he was a nobody. Um, so, I mean, <laughs> it, it, you know, it's, of course, you know, I'm dating myself. Um <laughs> but, you know, I can't thank you enough for making this documentary, Blair. It is, this whole series is spectacular. Is, are there any plans to do any other episodes? Not in the immediate future, but uh, we are very open to it. I have to tell you, I, I would love, there. there's so many things we couldn't include. And I agree with your assessment. We could have done 60 hours. Um, <laughs> it's. Uh, there's no shortage of just wonderful material, and uh, I'm so thrilled that, that people seem to be enjoying it. Well, I can't wait for everybody to see it. They can all see it now in the U.S. and the U.K. on iTunes, and I know the 27th it expands on all the digital platforms, so there's no excuse for anybody not to be able to see it. <laughs> Blair, thank you so well, much. Thank you so much. I know you have another interview to run to right now, but I... I hope you'll come back on the show again. I mean, it's it's a joy talking to you. I, I would love it, and and again, thank you so much for the kind words. I'm so I'm so glad that you that you enjoyed it. Oh, I'm going to watch it again. <laughs> <laughs> Please do. <laughs> Thanks, Blair. Bye bye. All right. Take care. Bye. And that was Blair Foster, co-director, executive producer of Rolling Stone Stories from the Edge. If you love music, you're going to love this. If you follow politics, if you love good journalism, this is the documentary series for you to see. Six episodes. that Fabulous. And now, I don't know how fabulous this guy is, but I'll talk to him anytime. Welcome to my dear friend, Ned Airbar. Hello, my love. Thank you very much. Hello, how are you? I'm fine. How are you? Great, great. Hopefully, I'm coming through. Right. I'm on. I'm, I think I'm on a Wi-Fi network. So you're on a Wi-Fi network. I give you an 800 number, and you're calling on a Wi-Fi network. Yeah, it, I know. The, the, you know, it's like this is what happens. I stop producing you, and you just don't listen. It's it's God. It's a crime. It's a crime. Uh, so, how excited are you that the California No is finally a reality? I am uh, beyond thrilled. It's been quite a, a long road um, to get this here, and now uh, we just had our debut in San Francisco last uh, last month, and now we're going to Sonoma this weekend, and I'm tickled. So are you flying out to Sonoma? I know you flew to San Francisco. Uh, I did, yes. Yeah, no, uh, I will be there with Noah Segan, our star and producer, and with uh, Coco Quinn, our producer extraordinaire, and we will be uh, doing it upright. Well, so that we can fill everybody in, give us a synopsis of the California No, and then I will get into specifics with you. Okay. Uh, we've been summing it up basically uh, most straightforward as 
it is a man who finds out that he's in an open marriage. Mm-hmm. That that that's <laughs> so, your you know, that's your um, tagline. That that's going to tell everybody what this film is about. Expand. Yes. Uh, well, okay. More in specifics. Uh, so he's a junketeer, which is a job that I'm for sure you are familiar with as well as I am. Yes. And don't think, um, and, don't think uh, for a minute that I didn't notice the costuming on Noah Segan's character of Elliot. It's like it came out of your closet <laughs> with the tie and the vest. Just saying. Well, it is partially how you save money on, uh, on costume budget. Well, I, I realize that, yes, but you make him look like you. So, all right, proceed. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Elliot, our, our hapless hero, is a not very talented uh, junketeer. Um, and we meet him in the film. He's in the middle of his first session of marriage counseling where he finds out that his wife had been living under the impression that they were in an open marriage, um, which, you know, and hilarity then ensues, hopefully. Yes, hilarity does ensue. However, I have to say, as he's questioning this whole marriage thing with her um, and the issues that they're having in their marriage, she's from Great Britain. All I kept thinking is she married him to get a green card. <laughs> well, that, that that comes up from time to time. You know, that's, you know, I, I kept thinking the entire film, I kept thinking. Because they're here, it's more like they're roommates than they're married. And, you know, she doesn't want him sleeping in the same bed. He's sleeping on a couch. It's like, you know, this feels like a green card situation. <laughs> well, that well, that's part, that's a bit intentional from, from my from my standpoint, because, um, you know, we want some doubt and ambiguity in the story. You have lots of doubt and ambiguity throughout the whole film, and that, that you did that really, really well. Um, part of it through your casting, yeah, it's... Noah is perfect as Elliot, as the hapless Elliot. Um, you also well, got... Noah, Noah's a dream. Noah, he was, he was brilliant. And, of course, Ursula Mills as British wife Allison... Um, she's stone cold. It's like she is an ice princess. So she's perfectly cast in the film. Um, you know, one of my favorite. Yeah, well, Go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say, but they both had, uh, I, I had the benefit of writing the parts for them um, with them in mind, at least because I knew Noah and I wanted to work on something together for, for several years. And so we just decided this would be the project we would just make happen. So, he had a, a big hand in helping me craft the character of, of Elliot. Mm-hmm. And Ursula w- worked with me in a, in a smaller capacity on Bunker, uh, my short film. And I was just dying to get uh, to do more with her. Mm-hmm. Well, it just seemed like the, the perfect opportunity. And of course, speaking of Bunker, um, you brought back one of my favorite people that you work with, Paul Telfer. Um, well, yeah. He's been in Bitter, he's been in Cop of the Damned, and he's been in Bunker. Um and he actually gets, he's not a minotaur's head or anything this time. He actually has a substantive speaking part. Yes, that was, um, I promised Paul that this time I would not just use him for his body. Which is a very fine body, by the way. So when, you know, ladies, when you go, and guys even, you go see the film, it's a very fine body to look at. I, I, have, to, I have to point that out. And, you know, and then you've got a nice little cameo by Brecken Meyer. Which I have to say, mm-hmm. it's, it's one of my favorite scenes in the film. It, I thought you'd like that. It's absolutely h- hilarious. 
But then you call on all sorts of our colleagues um, and have them do cameos, essentially, um, yes. at, at press junkets. And it's, it's hilarious. Yeah, we, um, we, uh, we rented out a uh, room at the Four Seasons, a suite that is actually used for junkets on a regular basis. And brought in some of my by some junketeers that I know very well, and had them sort of turn the tables and and play interviewees uh, for once. I have to say, Jen Yamato, Jen was great. Jen was fabulous. Yes. You know, I won't answer that question. I don't answer those questions. <laughs> um, you've really pulled from so many of our all of our experiences at doing press junkets to create this character of Elliot and what the world is like. But then you also go to the extreme with casting Jesse Bradford as egomaniacal actor Colton, whom Elliot gets into an entanglement with, shall we say, rather unethically and surreptitiously. And Jesse just blow. He goes, his performance is great. He goes to the far end of the spectrum um, yeah, and just plays it and hams it up to the nth degree. So he is like the celebrity from hell. I think that's a fair a fair description. Would you, would I think it's well? I mean, I I have some sympathy for him. I think I think Brecken might be more celebrity from hell than than him in, in the film, but he definitely um, definitely has his issues. You know, how hard was it creating? all of these characters because it's not just somebody shows up for one scene. This is truly everything is integrated with people, you know, every, all the lives are crossing. Everything is meshing. How difficult is that for you as a writer to create that? I mean, you did it to a degree in bunker. Um, Co-op was pretty, pretty centralized and it would change out each week. But here, you really have a true ensemble going on with everybody being a moving part. Thank you. Um, that all comes down to just having a central sort of uh, terminal that, that is, uh, that's Elliot uh, with Noah's performances. That the story, you know, is, is all following Elliot and everyone sort of comes in through his life and in and out of his life. And you just want to make sure that each character gets, you know, a full story as you're telling Elliot's story. And you really resolve, the only person whose, whose story doesn't really resolve with definitive answers is Elliot's. Everybody else, we know exactly. You dot the I's, cross the T's. You take us from beginning to end so we don't sit there scratching our heads at the end. And you know that's something that always annoys me. So I'm very glad. To I, see, yes, I know. I'm very <laughs> glad to see that here, you know, you completed everybody here. So, you know, was that always... Well, that was, that was very important. Why was that important to you? Uh, just because, I mean, it was, considering, not to give too much away about the ending, but um, since we do want to play with the title and the concept of the California, you know, and have a certain level of ambiguity in the film, I felt it very important that for all the supporting characters... Uh, we get, you know, a good definitive ending for each of them, um, especially because the movie, in a sense, is supposed to be about this one guy who just doesn't have his life together in any sense, but he's surrounded by, uh, you know, a, an ensemble of fully actualized adults whose lives are very diverse and interesting and, and engaging. 
And so I thought it would be uh, unfair to those characters to sort of leave any of them hanging. So, dare I ask the big question, how autobiographical is this? <laughs> um, well, I'm going to go with, uh, I think the word we've been using is semi. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, Noah and I, um, we've, we, just, uh, we, we were joking while we were making the film that we sort of took the, the worst aspects of our own personalities and combined them into one person. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah, I can see the worst. So there's a little of him and a little me. Well, I can see the worst aspects of you in, in Elliot. I admit that. I, I can I can see that. So now writing it and then moving on to directing it, you always knew when you wrote it you were going to direct it. That was always a given. As long as this whole thing, this whole process has been going on, there was never a question about you directing. So as a director and a writer, were you working out your visuals as you were writing? Did you finish the script, then try and, and come up with your visual, with your visuals, with your visual tonal bandwidth? And what led you to Calvin uh, Calloway as your DP? Um, well, to answer the first part, yes, um, I was, it was always sort of in concert. Um, so I always knew what I wanted the film to look like. And as I was writing it, it was very it was easy to sort of communicate that. Uh, what made that exceptionally sort of fluid was that the movie for to stay on budget was written specifically for the locations we ended up filming in. I sort of I I wouldn't write for a location if I didn't know that we could actually go there. Mm-hmm. And so I sort of knew knew as I was writing it where it was going to be taking place and could already imagine the shots and the scenes. Um, but Calvin has been my collaborator since um, since Call of the Damned. Uh, he's been my DP for several of those episodes and for Bunker. And I just, we have a, a great sort of rapport and working style. And um, it just seemed natural to, to have him along on this as well, because I just feel like we're, I'm not really a director um, without my full team. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, and actually we use Calvin's house in the film. Um, just the Samantha, the publicist's home where Elliot goes on a date is actually where Calvin lives, which is why it's so incredibly well lit. Um, that house is act- is actually quite gorgeous inside. So, how did you afford Calvin? Because he's getting money from somewhere for that house. Uh, it's the beauty of, of uh, working with people who are very talented and very well compensated by other jobs. Ah, oh, um, yes. Most most of the camera crew comes from uh, television, and when they're they're not working, they're they're very hungry to do something. Uh, you know, a little different, mm-hmm. and we were able to entice them uh, into doing this film. Sort of say, "Hey, let's you know, let's have some fun here on the weekends." Yeah, you know, something that you did that a lot of first-time feature directors they'll shy away from. You have quite a few locations here. You didn't you didn't center this in just one location. You've got quite a few locations going on here. Was that ever a consideration to cut down the number of locations, expand the number of locations? Uh, no, I mean, I, uh, I, we sort of found the right balance based on the story and the budget. We wanted to go as, as big as possible to sort of show the full scope of the city and, uh, and Elliot's world within it. Um, and the big fear about having too few locations is that so much happens in that house but he, where he lives with Allison mm-hmm. that it would start to feel too much like, like almost claustrophobic in a way. Like, you know, like Bunker was supposed to feel claustrophobic. Obviously, it's just one location. It's a bunker. But, um, yeah. But this, you know, 
you want to get the sense of Los Angeles and uh, the East Side and the, the Beverly Hills and Malibu world um, to really to really show sort of how how expansive everything is. Um, and a lot of the, the the shoot the filming with the car really I feel like is the stuff that that sells that. We got really lucky. Don't talk to, to, it, to do all that. that car. I want that car. I want that car. That car is spectacular. I, mean, I love that car. Oh my god. Oh, Pam. I I oh we have we have a surprise guest joining us, Ned. Oh dear. Is 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 my surprise guest on the line? Yes, I think I am. <laughs> Do you know who that is, Ned? Who is this surprise guest? It's your favorite zombie. Mr. Ned. Joel. How are you, sir? Mr. Joel. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic, man. Congratulations on everything with California now. Thank you very much. Uh, this is delightful. I'm so glad to have you on, on for this. Uh, Joel was one of the few people who got to, who saw the finished film prior to its premiere. Well, and yes. I got the bright idea last night. Joel and I cooked this up that he would call in <laughs> as a surprise guest today to talk about the film with you as well. That's fantastic. You know How I'm about them apples. You know I'm evil. So jo- <laughs> not evil. I was honestly, honestly, I'm worried that I would have to talk the whole half hour. Yeah, well, you have to anyway, but, you know, that's beside the point. But, you know, I know Joel also, uh, you can find him online, the movie Mensch, um, very a wonderful critic, and also part, part of our little, our little junketing group. Joel has now moved out of the L.A. area, but is still working hard. Ned, as I mentioned earlier in the show, defected and went to New York and left us, um, so it's a rare opportunity to to get to to do something like this. So let me ask Joel. You know, since you also saw the film, what's your take on it as a critic? Um, I just I don't I don't think they make movies like this much anymore, and that's why it was such a, a breath of fresh air. And I think that you know you can tell a whole lot of heart and soul went into the making of it, and it's a it's a real you know true story that grabs you and you are right along for the whole ride the whole way you have no idea where it's going to go or where the surprises are or what you know uh, it's emotionally very driven in that sense and uh, I think what really struck me too is it almost makes you look at yourself also in a different way and some of the choices that you've made along the way in your life and um, you know it's like I said it's really rare that a movie does that these days that kind of lets you think about things and uh I was just, you know, it was such a breath of fresh air, as I said. But, you know, of course, Joel, you may agree with me on this. You and I didn't get invited to participate in the film at the junkets, at the junket sequences. You know, I I don't know how you feel about this, but, you know, pretty shady. You didn't, you didn't invite us, Ned. Is this an ambush? (laughs) Uh, Never. Well, I, I look at it this way, Debbie. Um, as such, we can be uh, ethically clear to have a very strong opinion on it because we're not a part of it. That's true. That's true. 
Of course, I've had very strong opinions on some of Ned's work that I have been an integral part of, such as a <laughs> short film that we won't even mention. Oh, which one? No. Why would we mention that? Yeah, you know which one. Um, <laughs> geez. No, so what is, you know, what is it, as you watch the California No, Joel, I'm curious what your thoughts on the visual on the visual look of this film because visually it's a beautiful film and it really looks richer and more cinematic than a lot of films that you and I see that are quote unquote indies at the festival level for a first time feature director oh yeah absolutely well you know one of the things that made me want to move to California uh, all those years ago was uh, the movies, the movies that take place there, particularly movies that take place in Los Angeles. I, I just there's something about the the light, the scenery, the landscape, the topography. It just it's so rich, and it just was calling to me. Um, and many, many, many films use it, obviously, or you know Hollywood would be home to the film industry, but very few films uh, utilize it in a way that the California No does, and that it's just so uh, rich. Uh, sometimes I think it's funny when people say you know. Uh, landscape as a character, but it, it's in the title, and it sure certainly fits. Um, that it, it is as much a part of the goings-on as the characters themselves, and you you have, as somebody who has lived there and lived there for 20-something years, you can really uh, get the true sense that there's there's a there's almost a love letter to it um, that I thought was very rich, and visually stunning. That was one of the questions I was kind of asked Ned about, was, you know, the cinematography and the choices that he made. Uh, because they are just so rich, and they are—they just scream California and Los Angeles and everything that we know and love about it. And the color—the color is beautiful, Ned. I have to say, um, whoever did your color correction, well, thank you. your, the color is beautiful. The blue is nice and blue. The greens are green. Things pop within the various locations. I mean, you really spent time on color and creating contrast, yet uniformity. So everything does feel synergistic. Uh, we got really, really lucky in that regard in, uh, with, with post-production with uh, some help from Photochem uh, and a brilliant team there who really were able to take the film and, and help us create achieve this idea of a sort of like sun-bleached, washed-out, desaturated look that still has a lot of color pop to it and a lot of, and so you get that sort of what about like basically sums up like the east side of LA. No, I mean it it just looks beautiful and the contrast you have with Colton's house up in the up in the mountains where more deserty looking, you know, stark um it doesn't have the heart and warmth of some of your other locations with the color, particularly when you look at Kaylee's apartment, um, even Elliot's, you know, even Elliot's residence, you really, you create these distinctions of personality for the characters with the production design and the color and your choice of color palette. Uh, well, that's actually very interesting. I'm, I'm glad you noticed that. Uh, Alex Choate, who's our production designer, who's a genius, I think, uh, worked with on Fun Size Horror um, before jumping into this. He, uh, we, we sat down and we decided on sort of a, a palette for the film, and each character actually has a color. So we sort of, each, there are colors in the film that represent characters, and 
I don't, and uh, so if the one that represents Colton is gray. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, Colton is gray, sandy colored. Yeah, that 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 about sums it up. But you know, but you know, and uh, um, Elliot's blue naturally. So, well, Elliot is blue on many levels. <laughs> so he should be. Yeah, I, Joel. What Joel? You see so many indie films, just like I do. You know, what is it about independent films and filmmakers like Ned that speak to you as a critic? Um, I think they're, they're, you know, we all talk about freedom of expression uh, and how important that is for filmmakers. And I don't think that there is a uh, realm of filmmaking where that is more prevalent than the independent film landscape. And I think that you get a true sense of what an artist can do and, more importantly, what they're about uh, with their film, with an independent film. And uh, I know that the nature of the filmmaking of an independent film certainly has its restrictions in terms of budgets and maybe uh, filming schedules and and things like that, locations. But I think the, the, uh, you know, some of the, the brilliance that comes out of it is born out of the necessity of, you know, the, the desperation to get something that they can't get, and how are we going to do this? And I just think it's it's, a, it's why it's still thriving so much so in 2017, whatever year it is, um, you know, in, in the face of, you know, uh, uh, a Hollywood landscape that seems to be closing in on tent poles every other week and, and not really expressing, uh, you know, the true nature of story and filmmaking, and that's why we turn to independent film and and we see that in Ned's film, and it's just, you know, we, we identify with filmmakers, particularly being critics and appreciators of film. And, you know, we want to know what this filmmaker is about. I mean, we know what Coppola is about. We know what Spielberg is about from the length of their career. Uh, but in this day and age, it, it's the independent film world that really lets us know what a filmmaker is about. And we certainly get that with with Ned's film and, and with his shorts and his mm-hmm. work on Collective the Town and all that, you know, it's just, and that's why I think it's so important and vital to the health of the film industry as a whole. Yeah. One of the great things about your work, Ned, is that, you know, it's, you show us this great range of diversity. California no is nothing at all like bunker co-op or bitter. Right. Um, so we really, we, and I, you know how much I love bitter, bitter. I I just, I love beyond belief. Um, but you show us range, you show us diversity, um, with your storytelling and you're not pigeonholing yourself into any one category and you're equally adept in each one of the, in each one of these styles, each one of these genres, are, have you figured out what genre you would like to continue looking towards with future films? Um, I've, been, I've got a few ideas. I mean, uh, I think the one thing that sort of the one line that's consistent through all, everything I do is, is comedy, is that I just try, like, even if I've tried to write something serious, it just comes out funny. So I, I stopped fighting that a while ago. Um, so I think in the street, you know, my... The next few things I'm working on are also very uh, trying to find that nice balance between comedy and drama that I feel like is uh, represents real life. Ooh, tell us, tell us, what are you working on? <laughs> uh, well, you know, if it's 
I'm writing some stuff. Nothing can really, nothing worth really talking about too much. But I have been working for a while on trying to get an adaptation of this novel, uh, Sprout, off the ground, which is by the wonderful Dale Peck about a uh, gay teenager from Long Island who gets uprooted and moves to rural Kansas to finish high school. Oh, oh that's sad. But it's funny. It's sad but funny. Okay. All right. Well. All right. I want to see what you can, what you do with that one. I heard I heard Joel's uh, about moving to, to Kansas. You know. <laughs> no. Well, that just sounds right. It just sounds so right, and then in, 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 in a kind of way that I I could see a, as the next chapter in the the Nedrick film uh, universe. Oh. Um, no. Abs- absolutely. Well, thank you. You know, I, I'd be remiss not to ask you, Ned, about the music in the film. Because music is always, so so often in independent films, it gets overlooked because music licensing is pricey. And will eat up your budget faster than anything. Well, with this one, um, I, I was well aware of that. I've, I've run into a lot of well, licensing fee issues in the past. Um especially working on in independent budgets. Uh, this time, I sort of set out to find a, a soundscape for the movie that felt very natural to, to the characters and to the landscape and felt very California. Um, so I just sought out a few indie bands that were uh, up and coming who would, you know, could be talked into doing things for, <laughs> for reasonable prices. And uh, ironically, none of them were actually from L.A., uh, the main, the main band, the, the one band, the, the 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 song in the opening credits is a band that it was based in Los Angeles called Babes, um, and they actually used to practice in the same space where we filmed Bunker and the party scene in this film. But the other three bands, uh, uh, Dios Mio and Avenue One, Dios Mio is from London and Avenue is from Toronto, and then uh, Milena Cadiz, who is actually a fantastic singer songwriter, she now lives in Los Angeles. But at the time, she was based in Brooklyn. No, you've got a very eclectic blend of music in the film that it it struck me because of the amount of, of needle drops you have and the diversity of them. Um, that is very reflective of California on the whole. But I I was really impressed with that. So I was curious about, you know, how you didn't break the bank on that one. Uh, well, I also have to mention, um, of course, in addition to the the, the uh, three or four bands that we had involved, there's also Brian H. Kim, who is a fantastic composer, who has worked with me on pretty much all of my projects. He's as done well. everything, yeah. And he's he filled in some great uh, some great moments that actually just sound like another band, but it's just Brian being a genius. So before we run out of time, gentlemen, Joel, last comments to you. You can chat with Ned here. What are your last thoughts to Ned? Well, I, I would think, you know, you mentioned what you're doing next, but I, I know that, you know, we all have to move for various reasons. I, here in Washington State, you now in New York, both of us certainly share a passion for California and it served as a landscape for your film and being able to make films. How, as being in New York, kind of altered your eye, influenced your eye, or kind of, uh, you know, set you up to be, you know, a filmmaker heading forward? Um, very, very good question. Uh, actually, as soon as I got back here, because I'm I'm from the New York area originally and spent most of my life in New York City, uh, and as soon as I got back after finishing California No, all I could 
think about was how I wanted to shoot various locations around New York City. Um, and so I think it's only inevitable that I'll end up making something here um, sooner rather than later. Well, gentlemen, I can't thank you both. This has been an absolute delight. I haven't gotten to talk to Joel since he moved. Neither one of us have gotten to talk to you since you moved across the country. Um, But I'm so glad that we could get together to talk about, you know, the California No. And as Joel said, you know, it's a love letter. And you really did. You put your heart and soul in it. And those of us that know you in particular see that. And I just hope that as you keep going through the fest circuit and into distribution deals that everybody else sees what Joel and I see in this film. Thank you. I honestly would not be here without the support of both of you. Well, we know that. You know, we know that. Joel, thank you so much for the surprise. Thank you. Ned. Hey, Ned. All the best to you, my friend. uh, And I look forward to talking to both of you guys again soon. Yes, guys. And thank you. This was a fantastic surprise. Oh, good. Good. All right, guys. I'll see you later. Bye. Okay. Bye. Okay. And that was Ned Airbar, writer-director of The California Know, and Joel Amos, the movie mensch. You can find his reviews uh, and interviews at themoviemensch.com. That's all the time we have today. Until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is... Behind the Lens.